welcome to the Sport and History podcast brought to you by the British Society of Sport History in association with the Institute of Historical Research. This week we're continuing the series of conversations with researchers who have given papers at the BSSH's Sport and Leisure History Seminar Series at the IHR with Amelia Clegg. Hi Amelia. Hi Jeff, thanks for having me today. Uh, Amelia is a postgraduate researcher at Birkbeck College at the University of London and she's researching the history of masculinity in the South African War, sometimes known as the Boer War by the old-fashioned amongst us. Um, when she gave her paper at the IHR in April of 2018, she was part of a series of speakers looking at the way in which sport and leisure act as a way in which to look at masculinity and the military in 19th and 20th century Britain. Um, so Amelia, your paper at the IHR discussed the ways in which masculinity and leadership were discussed in relationship to, the, to um, the military in the Victorian press. Can you expand on that? Can you tell us something about um, what you talked about at the IHR? Um, I talked about how sport um, and playing fields were, um, you know, in the late 19th century, where, which was instituted to, you know, encourage friendly man com competition in a controlled environment and how that was used as a sort of practical tool in which to encourage leadership and command and also then how various um, sports activities in the war um, also you know, uh, influenced uh, leadership and overall you know, these aspects contributed to what I talk about um, or talked about in the paper um, regarding effectivity of commanders and especially 2nd Battalion Coldstream. Right, okay, that's, <laughs> that's your real speciality isn't it, is you're looking at one particular battalion? Yes or, I am. Yeah, yeah. Um, that was involved in the South African War and your, your, your focus I think is on two officers of the Guards, Major, Major Arthur Henniker and Major Harry Shute. Absolutely, I, I look at the Coldstream Guards and my two case studies as you just said is Henniker and Shute and they are two very interesting um, you know, men, officer men as I call them yeah. um, and also their private papers, their letters, their diaries yeah. have you know, provided some you know, treasure um, for me to use. Can you unpack that term officer men, is that a kind of a key term as a part of your argument? Um, so in my work I focus on specifically on two things. Firstly I refute claims made um, by the uh, Royal Commission following the South African War uh, talking about middle command and failures made. Generals basically blamed a lot of that on middle command so I yeah. refute that Because there was a big um, inquiry into the into the prosecution of the war and the Absolutely. ability of the troops wasn't there because it yes. was a disastrous war for the British even though Exactly, and during that, you know, the um, commission, the testimonies of the generals, they basically tried to shift blame from their own um, failures. And then in the second instance, I go beyond the functionality of that um, question of, you know, uh, refuting, uh, statement of refuting the, the ineffectiveness of, alleged ineffectiveness of middle command, and I use a gendered approach to look at certain aspects and themes 
regarding masculinity, manliness, and manhood, which I can explain a little bit. Yeah, if you I'd need be happy to. for you to do that because I think that sometimes people find sort of gender theory quite difficult, even even you know. Even Absolutely. I mean, I just to kind of summarize that. So the gender focus then um, looks at a different angle at leadership practices and sort of um, gave us a wider idea of how gender and um, sort of command, so leadership and command, which are two different things, um, work together in, in sort of forming effectivity in, in warfare. So command is your sort of your functional, administrative, everyday um, duties. And then leadership is, it's more of an abstract concept um, where a commander needs to inspire his men in order to you know get them to sort of fully follow him through no matter what so and so these different aspects yeah. then sort of contribute so, so this is where you sometimes get the idea of performance isn't it yeah a, a masculine performance and yeah. performing a certain role would you say that and so i think we see that in sport but obviously the military as well is kind of absolutely yeah. what happened on playing fields you know also transformed to battlefields so Ma masculinity, manliness, manhood. Uh, firstly, masculinity is a sort of a, an ideal concept or image which a man strives for. And then manliness is a sort of a moral code in which to then achieve this, and that is manhood. Yeah. So that's your, your action, and here's your ways in which to do it, and then here's the broad sort of what you want to be as a man. And how do you how do you see the these two individuals, Henneker and Schutz, um, what sort of manliness are they embodying, do you think? Is that is that part of your kind Yes, of argument? very much yeah. so. So through these different themes I, I look at, um, you know, because they're very different and each is a unique individual, you can see the differences in the two men in terms of you know what kind of man they wanted to be and how they sort of acted you know in this sort of concept of what they you know what they eventually wanted to portray to their men so Henneke was very paternal he was very active he was very sporty um, and he was he was quite moral he was very religious as well um, and he he always used phrases uh, sporting phrases playing the game and being part of a team and is a cricket um, to sort of refer to what happened on the battlefield or even between him and other members of, of the you know commanders were they were they acting within his own moral code whereas Shooth, um he was very much a lone man ambitious got the job done no matter what so he <laughs> He very much sort of went on his own way, and because he his leadership practices were so different, he was getting the results, the, the senior command, you know, which they were looking for, mm. and so he got away with a lot of it. When he was commandant in Grafenet from January 1901 to the end of the war, he his actions, things that he instituted, then how he dealt with the population you know it it very much affected the town and the district and you know even though 
he was just this one. So they're, so they're acting not just as military figures with their own troops and in battle, but they're also administrators of uh, territories within, within the South African Absolutely. Colonies. So, yes. Um, Shoot, for instance, he wasn't very active. He wasn't very sporty. But, um, you know, with, with regards to sort of popular press and so on in the 19th late 19th century, in sort of weeklies and all that, um, books, young boys were sort of, you know, inculcated with the image of this martial masculine warrior. And this is what you had to strive for. And so march, the martiality of, of this soldier, that where a soldier becomes a warrior, was the image that the boys needed to, that was the masculinity they yeah. had to strive yeah. for. So, shoot, as I said, but he wasn't quite the, the sporty and sporting kind, to be yeah. honest. But he then, and this is where my gender approach comes, he created his own version of a martial man, right. you know, his own sort of what it meant to be a martial masculine officer. And it was very much this sort of, you know, effective administrator officer man. Whereas Henneke very much um, perpetuated the idea of the gentleman, fair play, um, you know, sporting yeah. officer. How do you account for their two different approaches? Are they from a different uh, background? Are they from different... Henneke is slightly older yeah. than Shoot. Um, and that made a big difference in terms of um, how they, you know, when they moved up the ranks, even though they were both majors at that point, you know, they followed different routes, you know, um, and they also served in different uh, other colonial um, wars. Yeah. So the reason why I look at things like popular culture and sport is because these ideas and these situations because you know popular culture is a very big thing in terms of what masculinity means so through their ideas of what what men they were and through um, you know these different circumstances that they experienced in the war what I show is that each of them had his own way of practicing leadership but ultimately through these different situations and circumstances and their own perception of themselves, the self-identification is made, yeah. they were indeed effective in their duties and they contributed very much to, you know, successes in the war. And, and this popular culture is, is in the work that, that I've done on this period, I've been talking quite a lot about muscular Christianity. Is this, yes. is this a big influence on Absolutely. each of them? Absolutely. Um, not yeah. each of them. Oh, okay. Just the one <laughs> of them. <laughs> I think you can guess which yeah. one. Yeah. So, um, because Henico is very religious, he, you know, he had this pious idea of, of the world and, and how he wanted to conduct himself. And um, for instance, on his birthday, instead of relaxing doing anything else he could he went to two church services right. and he writes about you know god and and sort of you know salvation and all that a lot in his diary so through that kind of um i suppose approach to his leadership he he did play a fair fair game yeah um yeah. he got the results but in a very different way and shoot 
No, not, not at all. Kind of no, he wasn't religious at all, right. and he didn't really care for people. What, <laughs> what school did he go to, Shoot, Do you know? Um, he went. Oh, Henneke went to Eton, but right. um, I didn't get any information on. Oh, okay, Shoot's so it's kind school. of interesting. The educational background sometimes informs. It wasn't. Kind of, it wasn't yeah. Eton. Right. No, he wasn't as high class as that. So you've obviously worked a lot with the private papers of. Henniker and Schutz. Um, yes. How did you come to use them in particular as case studies? For well, it's an interesting story. Yeah. Um, I was working on an independent project um, for an ex-guardsman on his grandfather's battalion in the First World War. Mm. And whilst I was, um, I was granted special access to, um, to, you know, to work with these documents. And whilst I was in that in the archive at uh, Wellington Barrett's um, in St. James's Park, I came across these amazing diaries and one of the officers, shoot, the archivist who um, works there, Major Casano, he's the great, shoot is his great uncle. And so when I started looking around South African war stuff, he said, oh, why don't you look at this? This is my great uncle, and the rest, as I would say, is history. <laughs> okay, so you kind of you came across them, and yeah. then and then you found. I mean, that's that's the dream of all researchers it is it to really find an archive uh, that people have. It really mind. is. Yeah. I I was very very lucky, very lucky, and both diaries. One was typed up later on, <laughs> and I mean, I'm just like yeah. So did you have a, people might be able to detect a certain South African uh, trace in your indeed, accent? Indeed, indeed. Did you have a, an interest already in the yes. South African war? You did, did, did your family, did, was that from a family yes. interest? Um, I suppose more than one um, interest, but yes, family certain, certainly was the start of it. My great, great, great grandmother, my, my grandmother's grandmother, Right, okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, her, well, she was interned in a concentration camp. Um, and my gra uh, great, great, great grandfather, he was one of the fighters and captured and sent to St. Helena as a POW. From um, the Boer side. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but um, what, you know, I heard all this from my grandmother's side of how she found out about things as she was growing up. But when the British soldiers arrived at the farm, it was just her grandmother there with her own children, three children, and then four neighboring of the neighboring farm's children. And they basically they had, um, you know, they were farming with uh, cattle and other livestock, and they had, you know, um, maize and all that kind of thing. And she stood there and watched how everything from the house, the livestock. Everything was burned down to the ground, and you know that kind of stayed in the family. That sort of image of they never got back on their feet after the war, which was really sad. They they tried to sort of both of them to build up. They tried what to they revive the farm. Yeah, but they they just they never got it. You know, they so they were very much um, affected by it. And then on the other hand, I got I was interested in in the South African War because I had a most amazing history teacher um, 
Thanks, Mr. Lirov. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, yes, that's where the... History yeah. teachers are really important, aren't they? Oh, but they for, are. for us historians, I think everybody has a teacher like oh, that that yeah. they remember, don't they? No, they're he was absolutely great, yeah. Uh, by sort of, uh, inspired by being taught at school. And sometimes it's latent and takes years to come back. Mm -hmm. But if you've got a passion for history, I yeah. think it often goes back to that. Yeah. It's that early experience, doesn't it? Um, and how does the the work on Shute and Henniker fit into your thesis as a whole? Is it, is it is it focused on them, or is it a bit wider than that? It I mean, it does yeah. go a bit wider. Um, yeah. So as I said previously, you know, I focus on two aspects: the effectivity of the middle commanders, specifically middle command, mm. is is my is my focus, um, and you know whether or not they could be blamed for mistakes made. And then the other is the gender approach. Um, so the chapters fit together through this overriding question of effectivity in leadership practices. Yeah. And then I look at it from different angles. So I look at how their leadership practices were influenced by new techniques and technologies, and specifically communication methods and how they you know got on with it and how it affected their leadership and then um, you know I have a sort of broad introductory chapter on, on, on gender which then introduces the next one on social relationships so how the men the middle command um, you know how they related to each other yeah. off the battlefield away from the furious fighting yeah. yeah and how this kind of social power which is basically men can influence their, their their friends or other men through their actions and so how you know these sort of it, whom they got in contact with and the, the, the sort of the socialization that they did how that affected themselves how they saw themselves and then how they saw others and sort of as we said about sports and sort of mm. you know how leadership you know is created between you know in, in a friendly competition yeah. on the field so it's sort of that idea of, of yeah. and then and then from there I, I look at how these social relationships also then contributed to their professional relationships and then all together you know were they yeah, I think it's really interesting because I was talking in the last episode of the podcast to somebody who, talk, who was talking about um, rugby tours mm. um, and like the New Zealanders coming to Wales mm. uh, in 1905 and 1953 and we were talking about what happened in the match so if you had the analogy between the military and sport what happens on the battlefield is really mm. important to lots of people. <laughs> yes, uh, especially if you're yeah. a spring box. Yeah, like myself. <laughs> yeah but uh, we were, I was kind of thinking when Hugh was talking about that stuff, but also thinking about how the, the, the experience of going on a tour like that, of being mm. away for mm. three to six months, and the kind of the socialization that the players have with each other of being away from family and 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 now when you were talking about what you're doing, I'm thinking it's quite a similar thing, you know, it's quite a similar yeah. thing that these soldiers are not fighting all the time. 
exactly. they're not being soldiers all the time. Yeah, they're also they're, men first, yeah, then soldiers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And, I, and I think it's a, it's a really interesting turn in military history, isn't it? That's happened <coughs> fairly recently. I'm not a military specialist, but this sort kind of, of move away. Beginning from, of sixties, yeah. um, yeah. uh, with Huntington and his um, new military history, you know, yeah. cultural, social approaches. And you really see your workers fitting into that kind I of do. new turn. Or, yeah, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. new, <laughs> quote unquote. Well, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, so you know, but it's away more from of the a trad kind of war yeah, in society. Drums and ammo approach, yeah, yeah. Uh, drums and trumpets. <laughs> Trump, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Although both are needed, um, yeah. you know, yeah. And what stage of the PhD are you at now? I've got about a month right. before well, I okay. submit. So serious. <laughs> Very serious. Um, can't believe yeah. it's almost over. Uh, yeah. yeah, it feels like a lifetime, uh, you know, ago when I started. Yeah, but. You excited, scared, uh, worried? I think, uh, I think all three, all yeah. of the above. <laughs> um, but yeah, just it's been an incredible journey, you know, many levels. So yeah, I think I'm, I'm excited as well as scared and nervous. <laughs> and you're doing your PhD at Birkbeck. We've, uh, we've both, uh, with the same supervisor that I had, uh, yes. Hilary, who's great, Hilary uh, Sapphire. Fantastic. Full credit. And how did you come to do your work at Birkbeck? What was, what was your path into that? It's a very specific kind of institution. Isn't it, it is. Um, I was a school teacher, secondary school teacher, history and English before I started PhD. And my husband, um, now Dr. Andrew Clegg, he, he was doing his um, masters. And then as I started, he started his PhD at Birkbeck in um, computers and crystallography and all that fancy stuff okay. um, and so that's how I you know um, heard about Birkbeck and because I was teaching at the time I needed something and somewhere where I could still work and 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 also study um, I first of all started with sort of reviving my German language skills okay. um, and and did that at Birkbeck as well and then I started my masters and then did my PhD. So I can definitely say Birkbeck is a fantastic, unique institution, yeah. um, which caters for the working student, but moreover, it also caters for anybody else, to be honest. Older people, um, you know, people who wanted to go back to studying, never got a degree, or like I said, all the people who just wanted to do it for, or just want to study for, for fun. Yeah, and what was what was your masters that you did then? My masters was in ho Holocaust history, um, and I specifically looked at um, the SS in that moved from Auschwitz to Bergen-Belsen towards the end of the war, and how they basically took along, took with them their um, how they how they basically took their training at Auschwitz with them to Belsen and how their presence at that late stage of the war, I mean Belsen it was already absolutely atrocious, but how their presence um, you know, accelerated right. conditions and the link then between the, sort of the Auschwitz quote unquote training and then, and then the impact on, on Belsen. So when you moved from your MA to the PhD, it was a completely different subject. Right? Ah, yeah, or, you see, oh, okay. <laughs> in South Africa, when you do history, you basically do two, two kind of histories in, you know, in parallel. So we write two papers in A level. So one was European history and the other Southern, you know, Southern Africa history. Yeah. So hence why I ended up 
um, with with a masters in you know German military oh, okay. history, and then now doing um, you know a PhD in in cultural history of warfare of South Africa. So you always had those two strands going Absolutely. through your mind. Absolutely, I love both. Yeah. So you know, yeah. I'm I'm lucky to have had the chance to do both in such you know great detail. And once you've uh, smashed the Viva, what's what's the plans after that? Um, well, I am going to try and stay in academia. It's a tough game, you know. To to I will I will try and you know um, play fair. Yeah. And, <laughs> but uh, uh, it's yeah, I'm definitely going to do that. Writing? Uh, do you see? Are you producing any articles? Or? I I am indeed working on two articles at the moment. Um, I've got a review uh, published, uh, which is going to be published in autumn, and I am also going to do my write my monograph. Right, so it's a typical kind of yep. postdoc future, immediate future. I do you. have a postdoc idea, and yeah. I do have a mentor in mind. He just doesn't know it yet. So. <laughs> Maybe you shouldn't let that one out of the bag. Right? I won't. <laughs> oh, my lips are zip. <laughs> okay, well, thanks. Uh, thanks for taking the time to talk to me today. I really enjoyed it, and um, thanks for sharing your research with us. No, thank you. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks yeah. for having me. And uh, if you want to uh, find out more about what Amelia is up to, she's quite. you're quite active on Twitter. I am. Yeah. I am. What's so your at? It's at Amelia Clegg, A-M-E-L-I is the name with a capital A, Clegg, C-L-E-G-G, Clegg with a capital C, zero one. Okay, so yep, you can look up Amelia there and find out what she's been up to or what she's doing in the future. Um, if you listeners think you've done some research on sport or leisure history that would be suitable for the seminar series at the IHR, we're looking for speakers now. For the 2019-2020 academic year, we need a speaker for October the 7th. Uh, we do have a backup, but um, if we get somebody, uh, somebody uh, willing to come forward, we'll, we'll put you in there. Um, do get in touch with us via the BSSH website, which is sportinhistory.org, or you can tweet us at the BSSH's account, uh, which you can find easily if you search on Twitter for British Sports Society History keywords something like that and that's all from us for this episode so until next time it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from the media goodbye goodbye <laughs>